Well, again, let me say happy Mother's Day to you. Uh, moms, I want to ask a question, but I need to go ahead and state at the outset, this question is meant to be rhetorical. Here's the question. Is being a mom worth it? Now you see why it was rhetorical. Exactly right. I didn't want the awkward situation. Uh, of course the answer is yes. Of course being a mom's worth it. But I preface it by saying it's rhetorical just in case. I don't know how rocky the minivan ride to church here this morning was. So I didn't want you seated next to somebody where you thought, that's a good question. I don't know. Some days. But if I asked you why is being a mom worth it? What, what makes being a mom worth it? I doubt your answer would be, maybe, but I doubt you would say, oh, the mission of motherhood is worth it. I think of motherhood as a mission, and the mission is worth it because of the propagation of the human species. Yes, that is what makes mothering worth it, is that we are able, as a species, as humanity, to, to pass on genetic code so that the next generation can exist and the propagation of the human species. Yes, I'm willing to do my part so that the human race may continue going forward. That's what makes the mission of motherhood worth it. I think you'd say, what? Like, I don't really think in those terms. I don't think of what I'm doing as doing my part in the propagation of the human species for the next generation. I, I think motherhood is worth it, you'd say, because I love my kid, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it comes down to love. It's not about some, some mission of motherhood. It's about, like, I love these little, these little jokers that run around the house and don't pay rent. I love them, you know? And because I love my kid, that's the context. The, mother, the mission of motherhood is worth it because I love my kid. You say, what does that have to do with Matthew chapter 10? What does that have to do with our text today? I asked that very question to set up Matthew chapter 10 because in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is sending his apostles out. You know him as the 12 disciples. He's sending those guys out on his mission. And I don't think, I mean, they're going to face trials. They're going to face hardships. The vast majority ended up, by the way, being martyred. I don't think if we asked them, hey, is the mission of Jesus worth it? Because you love the mission. You love these hardships. You love the idea of the kingdom of God going forward, and you love the idea of strategy and, 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 and missiology and the mission of God. I think if we were to ask them, I think if we just pulled them aside, it's, you know, if we were to ask Peter and Andrew and James and John and Thomas and Bartholomew and Judas and Simon and the others, like if we asked them, <laughs> I don't think they would say, yes, I'm out on this mission because I love missions. I think they would look at me and say, Tom, the mission is worth it because I love my Lord. With the exception of Judas, wouldn't they say the mission is worth it because I love Jesus. The title of my message today is, The Mission is Worth It Because Jesus is Worth It. The mission is worth it because Jesus is worth it. Now, I don't want to uh, 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 move too fast here, but I don't want to move too slow either. I, I just want to lay some groundwork. I'm going to ask you to write down three things today. The first is that you are on a mission. The first is Jesus sends us out. I want to get right to the application. So you, I'm going to ask you to write down three things. This is the first one. Jesus sends it out. And so I don't, Jesus sends us out. I don't know if you've thought about it in these terms, but listen, if you are a Christian, if you are a believer you, like the apostles, you have been sent out on mission. 
Every believer is on mission. Every believer is sent out. You were sent out into the world. You remember our text last week, Matthew 9. You were sent out into the world to show gospel compassion to other people. I got a few texts. I'm not going to lie. I got a few phone calls. People saying, oh, I had a chance to show compassion. Right? And they would tell me all about that compassion moment that they had. Some of you are smiling. Yeah, yeah, you had a chance to show compassion if you were here last week. But what I want you to see is you were sent out. Uh, uh, I, won't, I won't belabor the point, but just glance at the text from last week, Matthew 9, and look at the exact words. I know I told you we were going to be in Matthew 10, and then I, I just want, we're going to start, we're going to really be in Matthew 10, 34. But will you just let me glance at a couple things with you here? Look at Matthew 9, 37. Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful. You remember this? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to, what's that? Send out laborers into his harvest. So right there, I want you to see, he, 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 he's praying, God, send out laborers into your harvest field. And then the very next thing he does in chapter 10, and I'm just going to walk you through a, a few verses here, and we'll spend the bulk of our time in verses 34 and following. But, but, but in chapter 10, he then, sort of like the apostles, become the answer to Jesus' prayer. Jesus has been teaching and preaching and healing, and he sends them out to preach and heal, and he selects the 12, and look at verse 5. Look at the exact wording. These 12, Jesus did what? Sent out. My point is simple. I don't want to belabor it, but he, Jesus sends his followers out. If you are a follower of Jesus, you've been sent out. I have to scratch my head sometimes. When people say things like, I'm a Christian, but like, my faith is private. I guess I know what people mean when they say that. If what they mean is my faith is private in the sense of my faith is deeply personal to me, and usually things that are deeply personal, we don't like to air out in front of everybody. I get that if that's what you mean. But let me push back to any Christian who would say, my faith is private. I would say to a Christian, there's no such thing. Jesus calls us to follow him publicly. Actually, we, that, that baptism that we got to witness today, that was our second baptism this morning. We had one at 8 a.m. You know, there's a reason we do these as part of the public worship service. You, you're called to follow Jesus publicly. This is a public declaration. So, so, so when you say, well, my, my faith is private, uh, careful now. When Jesus calls you, he calls you to follow him publicly. So let me just put a real fine point on it. Students, there's a lot of students in here. Do your classmates at school, do they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are a Jesus follower? Do they know? They need to know. It needs to be public. At the place where you work, is it clear do your coworkers know, yep, she's a Christian. She's a follower of Jesus Christ. Have you made that known in big ways, small ways? Listen, everybody, you have to be led by the Spirit here. Everybody has different ways of doing that. My point is, Jesus has sent you out. Do your neighbors know that you're a Jesus follower? It would be so easy to kind of like, like treat Christianity like a little private enclave, and we like get in a holy huddle, you know, every Sunday we kind of come together in the like, like sort of tree house of Christianity and then pull up the rope ladder so nobody else can get in but us. Jesus says that's not it at all, right? One of the famous books about evangelism, Jesus said you're the salt of the earth. One of the famous books about evangelism is out of the salt shaker, right? In other words, not hanging together in a little enclave but spread out in the world. Jesus sends us out. Again, I don't want to belabor the point, but that's the first thing I wanted you to see. We are on mission. If you are a Christian, you are on mission. If you are not yet a Christian, I'm glad you're here. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'm glad you're here. You will need to know this when you become a follower of Jesus, that he sends you out.
And the first thing he tells you, when he sends you out, the second thing I want you to write down, he sends you out. And the first thing he tells his followers and the first thing he would tell you as his follower after he sends you out is expect opposition. Will you write that down? Jesus sends us out. And the very first thing he does in chapter 10, he tells them, expect opposition. You can just glance at a few of these verses, but look, look, for example, at verse 16. He tells his apostles, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. How's that for a a simile? Sheep among wolves. Face opposition. Expect opposition. Now, there's different types of opposition. When we share the gospel with friends and neighbors, when our, when our friends at school, when they know we're a Christian, there's different degrees of persecution, right? And Jesus even points out here, like uh, 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 some people, they just don't want to hear what you have to say. Ah, that's not really persecution. That's just, okay, they don't want to hear what I have to say. Like if you look at verse 14, Jesus tells you how to deal with that. He tells his disciples, when that happens and you go to that city and they don't, they don't want to hear what you have to say, what does he tell them to do? This right here. Just dust the, dust the, dust dirt off, kick that dirt off your shoulder. How, I, I forget how, just get rid of the dust off your and move on, right? You don't have to be mean. You don't have to be nasty. You don't have to get in a fight. No, no, no. Just move on. Somebody else wants to hear. Why? Because the fields are ripe unto harvest. The harvest is plentiful. That's okay. But then he says, then persecution can escalate. Like, uh, for example, verse 17, to beatings, physical harm. He tells his apostles, they're going to flog you in the synagogue. And that's what happened to these early followers of Jesus. It might even escalate, if you glance at verse 18, the Gentile law courts. The, the, the Rome's going to get involved. And the penalties could get even scarier. You need to think of yourself as sheep among wolves. One of the ways I think we experience persecution as Christians in 2023 in America, it seems to me, maybe I'm the only one, it seems to me that I'm getting more and more used to the fact that just when I announce that I'm a Christian, people automatically are assuming things about me and they tend to be the worst things, tend to be the wrong things. When you announce in our cultural moment that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are committed to scriptures, immediately things like, well, there's somebody narrow-minded. There's a person that's judgmental. Hmm? They just assume that about me. They don't want to think about me, but they assume I'm self-righteous, judgmental, probably don't want to hang around certain groups of people, probably exclude some people from God's love and include other people. None of that's fair. And Jesus says in verses 24 and 25, he says, get used to people assuming the worst about your motives. I love this. He says, a disciple's not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It's enough just to be like the teacher. If they called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? In other words, he's like, look, I'm Jesus. I've done nothing but love everybody. All I've done is heal. All I've done is love with this huge heart of God. And they told me I'm the prince of demons. So uh, <laughs> you might want to get used to people assuming the worst about you. No, it's not fair. No, they're not right. And Jesus is like, I literally cast out demons. And when I told them, why do you think I'm the prince of demons if I'm casting out demons? They were like, well, you are. Right? Like, they were <laughs> So just get used to it. Expect that opposition. Jesus uh, says you don't have to fear, and he gives you some wise advice. This is culturally how a Christian is supposed to live, not just in Jesus' day, but in America in 2023. He gives some advice. He says, so here's what you do. Behold, I'm sending you out a sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Be as harmless as a little old dove, but as shrewd as a snake. Now, 
What's he mean by this? When he says, be wise as serpents, innocent as doves, he's saying, don't be naive. Don't be naive. Don't think everybody's going to like you. Have the shrewdness of a snake, right? Everybody hates snakes. Right now, I know what happened. There's a small, small majority of you that like, not everyone hates, right? You, you, you're into snakes. You collect snakes. You love snakes. Good for you. That, that's great. I think you're the exception that only proves the rule. Most people aren't like you. They don't have this heart for snakes. And they love snakes. I think that, that, that's great, whatever. Most of us are like, hey, there's a snake. My job, how fast can I kill it, right? Like, my, it's just instinctive. There's a, a hatred for snake. And yet, and yet, that snake doesn't go looking for trouble. That snake has a little snaky way. And back in Genesis 3, it says, now the serpent was the most crafty of the animals. That snake has its little snaky way to slither off into safety. It manages somehow to avoid. Think about how many people in Coleman are armed with, like, farm implements or whatever that are out there working that want to kill those snakes, and yet snakes are doing just fine. Why? They always find a way to slither away and snake another day, Right? He's saying, hey, disciple, don't go looking for trouble. Don't go start a big internet comment section war with somebody. You don't have, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're not looking for trouble. You don't have to go looking for persecution. No, no, no. No, you be wise. Don't be naive, but just understand this. Stop being a snake. Snakes are not sitting around a snake convention going, I don't get it. Why does everybody hate us? Right? They just assume everybody Hates us. Everybody is, is out to do us harm. He says, so Christian, that would, actually, that would actually help you have a better week. If you assume that the world, the flesh, and the devil have aligned to be against you. The reason being a Christian is hard is you're swimming upstream. You're swimming against the current, the world. Jesus says, all the world will hate you because of me. So here's what you do. It is natural. When you are hated, when you feel threatened, what do you do? You do what everybody does. You bow up and you get defensive and you're going to hate back. Nope. Harmless as doves. That's the difference. Be prepared to be hated, but you do something that is shocking to the world. You do something the world's never seen. You don't ever respond hate for hate. You love your enemies. You don't respond. You're just as innocent as a dove. Why does he pick dove? What are doves known for? Oh, please. A, a dove is the most harm. In the ancients, they thought of two turtle doves. They thought not only loving, but like monogamously loving to one partner their whole life. It was a symbol of love. You will never go to the movies and some horror film called Attack of the Killer Doves. It ain't going to happen, right? They're known for being innocent. They're not going to harm anybody. We name chocolate after dove. Okay? We name soap after dove. So be sweet and clean. Right? Like, you get it? The point is, you're not going to harm anybody. You be a shrewd. You have the shrewdness of a serpent. You, you don't have to go looking for trouble. Don't be naive. But, but you're as harmless as a dove. So you just keep on faithfully loving your spouse and trusting God. But don't be surprised if you end up uh, opposed. Jesus says it this way in verse 22. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. That's an incredible verse. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. What's he saying? If you joined uh, Christianity, if you became a Jesus follower uh, to win a popularity contest, that was a bad call. He said, no popularity contest. Let me ask you, uh, do you feel the weight of that? I, I really don't. 
Jesus said, you will be hated by all for my namesake. He was originally talking to the disciples, but then he widens the scope to talk to all of his followers. So that verse is intended for me. And this is very convicting to me, but there's only two possibilities. That I don't, there's only two reasons why I don't feel the weight of that. Like I, I don't feel hated by all for Jesus' sake. Only two possibilities. One, maybe, I don't know, it's a little flimsy. The other, dreadful to consider. But the first possibility is we live in a unique slice of history on a unique part of the world within that little slice, tiny slice of history. And we think it's normal that Christianity is granted sort of a privileged uh, a position in, in a, a free democracy, right? So because, because of where we live and because of the circumstances right now, we live in a place where there's a free country and so we shouldn't expect that hatred um, I don't know, that sounds a little thin. That, that is part of the possibility. I mean, maybe that is a possibility, but I worry the other possibility could be the reason I don't feel the weight of that verse is because all too often my life looks just like the world, so there's nothing really to be hated. I'm not abrasive because I'm bashful about the gospel. Because I'm not bold in my stance for Jesus Christ, I haven't earned the hatred of the world, the flesh, and the devil. I'm not on their radar, so to speak. It could be that as the church, we've capitulated so much to the world that the reason Matthew 10, doesn't weigh on us, it's not because of our great lucky cultural moment, but it's because maybe we haven't been different enough from the world. Well, at this point, I just want us to see, Jesus sends us out. He tells us to expect opposition. I will say when people talk about America becoming more hostile to the Christian faith, I leave that to cultural pundits to determine whether or not that analysis is true. I would just say as a preacher that anything that helps us establish our true identity as strangers in a strange land, that we are uh, the the old uh, Bible word aliens, not like aliens from outer space, but as in resident aliens, we are in the world but not of the world. And if, if, a, if, if a country becomes more and more secular and helps us remember that, it may not be a bad thing. Well, I think at this point, at least one of the disciples, surely, and maybe you're thinking this, at least somebody would think, all this opposition, right? All this hostility. Didn't Jesus come to bring peace? Like, does it strike anybody as odd that the gospel is this, like, like, like divisive thing that Jesus is so polarizing? I mean, didn't he come to be, bring peace? Didn't um, Isaiah prophesy he'd be the prince of peace? Didn't Zechariah prophesy that this child is going to lead us in the way of peace? Didn't just, like, a couple chapters ago in Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount say, blessed are you who are the peacemakers? And so I think Jesus anticipates this. Why all this opposition, Jesus? You're sending us out. Why are we going to be hated? Why all this opposition? I think because Jesus is the master teacher. Look at verse 34. We're going we're to just camp out here as we close. Verse 34. Uh, I think he anticipates all this. So he gathers the disciples together, and he would want to say to you something that is absolutely shocking. It would have been shocking to them. And if you, think, if you start to think about it, it's still a little shocking. Jesus says, Yet do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Wait, what? It's funny because I would totally think you came to bring peace to the earth. If you gave me like five guesses of what Jesus came to bring to the earth, peace would be like, if not my number one guess, it would definitely be top five. So I am totally thinking that you came to bring peace to the earth. He says, no, do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. 
Like, okay, okay, that's crazy. Obviously, Jesus, I've misunderstood you. So he says it again. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What? I've never heard that preached at Advent. Jesus came to bring us hope and joy and a sword. Right? Like, what? I, I, what do you mean you didn't come to bring peace, but a sword? Jesus knows how his disciples are thinking. It's how many disciples still think. Jesus says, I, I know. You've been told your whole life, and rightfully so, you've been told your whole life that when Messiah comes, he will lock in a peace that will never end. You get that from prophets like Isaiah, who prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. This is Isaiah 9. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace peace there will be no end so when messiah establishes his kingdom it will be an eternal kingdom of peace it will be marked by peace peace will be locked in he goes the problem with everybody's thinking it, talking about the, to these disciples he goes, the problem with this is y'all think this is going to happen on my first coming you think it's going to be a, a one-shot deal i'm messiah's going to come and that's why the disciples were always trying to get him to build up an army to take over caesar to become king lock in that Lock in that kingdom of peace that never ends. Do it now, Messiah. He goes, you, you, you don't realize. I've got to do something on my first coming so that when I return on my second coming, I can bring that eternal peace. I can lock in that peace. Here's the deal. If I lock in a peace right now and we start that, there's no justice. There's, if I don't deal with the sin problem, I've just locked in a kind of superficial, sinful peace. You don't want that. That's why he says in John chapter 12, when I come, I'm coming as judge, and it's going to be peace forever. That'll be when the sky's ripped open and Jesus returns. Make no mistake, there will be a kingdom of peace, and it will last forever. He will lock that in. He goes, but if I do that now, I will lock in all the sin with it. I lock in all the trouble and all the heartache, and there can't be peace without that justice. He goes, so here's the deal. On this coming, I have a total different mission than justice of the peace. On this coming, he says in John 12, 34, I have not come to judge the world, but to save it. First Messiah's mission is to come as the suffering servant. I'm gonna save the world. And then, as, as that kingdom expands through the mission of the church around the world, as more and more people come under the shalom of Jesus and enter his kingdom, then on a day that only the Father knows, the sky will be ripped open, he'll return, and there will be peace. But he's saying, right now, I gotta tear some stuff up. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta blow some stuff up. I gotta, I gotta upset some allegiances, and I gotta proclaim a whole new way of looking at life. I gotta, enter, I gotta proclaim a new covenant. It's gonna upset a lot of people. You might say it this way. I have, there will be peace one day, but not right now. Right now, it's a sword. Probably goes without saying, but I, I wanna say, obviously, Jesus here is not talking when he says bring a sword. He doesn't mean literal violence. How do we know that? Because he just said, be as harmless as a dove. And over, over in the Gospels, he rejects violence. In fact, the one time his followers did use a sword, do you remember what happened? Do you remember this? In the Garden of Gethsemane, when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls out a sword, which he's not used to using, you know? And so he tries to behead one of the, the high priest's servant who's come there, part of the people that are gonna arrest Jesus. He tries to behead the guy, but he misses, so he just slices an ear because he's a fisherman, not a samurai. What does Jesus do in that moment? The one time there was violence, what does Jesus do? Jesus picks up the ear and heals the guy's ear. So the one time there was violence, Jesus undoes it and tells Peter, put away your sword. So it's not a literal sword. Why did he use this metaphor? I didn't come to bring peace but a sword because think about what a sword does. A sword cuts, a sword 
divides. Divides. Because of my gospel, Jesus is saying, there's going to be division. They're going to be polarizing. Nobody's going to be, uh, nobody's going to be neutral when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to Jesus. Nobody's going to be like, yeah, take him or leave him. I don't care. No, you have a strong opinion about Jesus. This country right now has a strong opinion about Jesus. You can talk about your love for God. You can talk about your faith and how it gives you a lot of hope and comfort. And when you say, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he's the only way to God the Father, now you've got division. Why? He didn't come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword. And that division is going to test all sorts of previous uh, allegiances. Why? Why do people get uncomfortable? Why, why about, what makes the gospel of Jesus a sword that divides and cuts? Can I tell you why? When Jesus comes in, he has a whole new foundation for your life, a gestalt for your life. When you boil your life down, um, <laughs> that's funny, the other, the other day I was talking to the kids, I was trying to help, help them. They had some memory verse or whatever. And I was like, guys, when you boil it all down, it comes to love. And my youngest goes, so love can survive a boil. I'm like, I never thought of it that way. But yes, yes, love can survive a boil. When you boil it all down, Jesus says you have a new foundation in your life. It's love. It's love of God. And that means, here's the deal, your foundation, whatever you're building your life on, if it's not Jesus Christ, your foundation has just been revealed as woefully inadequate. Your foundation can't hold a life. People don't like being told that. I'm sorry, but uh, the good news is Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and the only person he can save is a sinful wretch. Now, if you will admit that you have no dignity before God, if you will admit that the only way to come before God is a mendicant, you can only come as a beggar, you are God's welfare case. That's all you have to offer God. You have nothing to offer God, and it's all charity. You leave your pride, you leave your dignity, you get on your knees, and you only come to God as a humble wretch. That's the way in. It's the only way, but praise God, it is the way, and that way's available. Do you want it? That rubs some people the wrong way. How dare you tell me I'm not getting into heaven except on my knees, accepting the welfare of God. I don't need welfare from anybody. I'm a good person, and my mama's a good lady, and I, my granddaddy built this church with his bear. You know, divisive, isn't it? It's not peace. It's a sword. The world doesn't want to hear you're in need of God's salvation. You're in need of a rescue. How dare you say that? How dare you? Oh, and, and what are you going to tell me next? That the only way to God is through Jesus? That it's somehow exclusive? Well, he is the only way to Jesus, but I wouldn't say he's exclusive because that way, he, excuse me, Jesus is the only way to God, but I wouldn't say it's exclusive because that way to God is available to everybody. God so loved the world. You see, it's divisive. People don't necessarily want to hear that news. So Jesus is saying, look, I will eventually inaugurate this kingdom of peace. There's no question about it. There will be peace. And maybe you're here today, and, and you're here, and you would say, I, I, I'm not a follower of Jesus. And quite frankly, I am offended that you would say, I'm going to spend eternity in hell apart from God based on what I do with this offer of salvation from Jesus Christ. I can either place my faith and trust in Jesus or I'll spend eternity apart from God. Who do you think you are to make that offer? I'm a messenger. I'm a messenger. But if you're offended by that, at least you're hearing me correctly. That's what Jesus meant. It's not peace, but a sword. Think of it this way. 
Jesus is saying, look, I'm gonna bring this peace. But right now, I've gotta get to the root issue and I've gotta deal with that sin issue. Then I can lock in that peace. Imagine you have a, um, a basement and you are finally gonna organize a chaotic basement you, for Mother's Day. Uh, you're gonna, it's, it's a chaotic basement and it may look chaotic and in disarray or it may not look chaotic and in disarray, but everybody knows what's gonna happen. If you're gonna bring shalom, if you're gonna bring peace and order to that, to that basement, what do you have to do? Buddy, you have to start pulling stuff out and you gotta discover what's in that Tupperware. Who knew? There it is. I wondered where that was. There's my diploma. There's Christmas 85. Like, okay, you're pulling everything out, right? Uh, at some point, it's, it's getting pretty gross. There's cleaning. Serve Pro was called at one point, right? You've got stuff everywhere. And somebody comes over and goes, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? You said you were bringing order to your, your basement. You say, I am but it's gonna have to get a lot more chaotic for a second because I gotta get to the root issue of some stuff and then I can lock in the peace and order of the basement. That's what Jesus is saying. Hey, it's, it's gonna, I'm, I'm coming after the world, the flesh, and the devil, so there's gonna be a, a lot of a, a attack and turmoil. Ultimately, there will be peace. But on this trip, don't think it's, it's, it's peace, it's a sword. I thought of another example. Imagine you had uh, broken your, imagine you'd broken some bones and, um, but you were from a generation where it's like, ah, rub some dirt in it. And so now it reset improperly and you're paying for it, right? And so now the bone has begun to heal back and it, it never set properly. It all, all messed up. And you've got such pain because of this broken bone that, that, that it was never really set properly. And it's causing you all this pain. So you go to a, a good surgeon and, and, and you explain your problem and the surgeon tells you, well, I'm going to bring shalom. I'm going to bring peace. I'm going to bring healing to this bone. Okay, how are you going to do it? Well, you're not going to believe this. Even though I'm an agent of healing, the first thing I'm actually going to do, I'm going to break it again. Break it again? I came to you for healing. What do you mean you're going to break my arm? And he leans in close and says, do not think I've come to bring peace but a scalpel. Because what I have to do, it's, it's gonna have to get worse before it gets better. There's gonna have to be a dividing. There's gonna have to be a cutting. There's gonna have to be some going in and some tearing stuff up at the root level, at the foundation level. That's what Christ does to your heart. And what happens? Division. How deep does that division go? Listen, <laughs> and you'll see why the irony of this being a Mother's Day text, but how, how deep does that division go? Jesus says that division may go all the way to your highest allegiances. What would have been Jesus' highest allegiance? In Jesus' day, the highest allegiance someone would pay would be to the household, to the family. So a son's highest allegiance would be to his father. Uh, here it is. Four, the highest allegiance imaginable. Look what Jesus says. Here's how deep that cut may go. Four, I have come. Remember, I didn't come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. And that sword may divide, and it may even divide your own household. For I have come to set a man against his father. And the whole crowd would have gasped. <gasps> a man against his father? A son's highest allegiance is to the family. And the father, as the head of that family, the son would have given his highest allegiance. How can this be? That's how deep you'll cut, Jesus? He goes on. And a daughter against her mother. And the whole crowd gasped. A mother's highest allegiance would be to the matriarch who oversaw the women and children in that family. And it's unthinkable for a, a daughter to reserve anything but the highest allegiance for that mother. He goes on. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Everybody's like, well, that one. I mean. 
That one we can see. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, did you know he's quoting here Micah chapter 7? He's quoting the minor prophet. He says, listen, when God sends his servant, when, when, when the day of the Lord comes, there'll be, there'll be man, against, uh, a man against his son and, and a daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law. Highest allegiance, man to the father. Highest allegiance. And that business about the daughter-in-law. Back then, when a bride and groom got married, the bride would leave the groom's household and family. Remember, they all lived together. So he would leave the bride, uh, she would leave the bride's family and then be a member of the groom's family, welcomed in as the family. It would be unthinkable for that new bride to suddenly reject the authority of that new family. And Jesus is saying this, there will come, it is possible that you were fine and you had no family tension until you received me as your Lord and Savior. And now Thanksgiving dinner's not the same. And now Christmas is awkward. And now your family looks at you with disdain because somebody went and got born again. And now you're one of those born again Jesus people. And now there's tension in your family. 2,000 years have gone by and some of you still feel the sting of that verse. I saw this in reality. When I was ministering in New York City, we had folks come from families that were very hostile to the faith. And I remember it, it was baptism. For whatever reason, it was baptism that sealed the deal for these families. You could believe whatever you want. You could go to church kind of on the sly. As long as you didn't, you know, don't make a big deal about it. Don't bring it up at our religious traditions and stuff. But nobody really cared. But when you got baptized, that was it. Maybe that's why baptism is so significant uh, uh, personally as I, as I think about it. And I watch these young people get baptized. I think how how fortunate they are that these young people got baptized. They had all these families to wish them well and to cheer them on because I've seen it where, as, as one person put it, they, they said, well, if that church baptizes you, you may as well have them do your funeral too because you're dead to us. I've done a wedding where the, the bride had to walk herself down the aisle because the dad refused to come because of her commitment to Jesus Christ. It was so antithetical to everything he believed. Walk yourself down the aisle. Wouldn't even come to her wedding. Why? It was over Jesus. Now, you need to thank your heavenly father with heart of gratitude if you're in a family where people boldly following Jesus is celebrated. But you need to know that that's not normal everywhere around the earth. And for some of you who are hearing my voice right now, this lands pretty heavy on you because that's you. And you need to know there is someone who sees you and is with you, and it's the Lord Jesus. And he loves you. And he, he, he even told you to anticipate this, that you're not alone. But when it comes to allegiance, it is a wonderful thing when your allegiance to Christ actually aligns with your allegiance to the household. But on those times when your allegiance to Christ would set you at odds with allegiance to your own household, what do we do, Jesus? It says, choose me. Look at verse 37. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. <laughs> now, at first glance, I read that. And I was preparing this week. And I thought, maybe I'll skip Matthew 10 for Mother's Day. <laughs> but the more God revealed to me about this verse, the more I realized that's a perfect verse to preach on Mother's Day. Why? Because Jesus doesn't say you don't treasure the love of a family 
Jesus assumes you love your family. Listen carefully to what he's saying. He says, he's saying, think of the love that a parent has for a child. Think of the love that a child has for a mama. Today, of all days, think about the love that children have for their moms. Think about mom's love for the child. What do you do for that child? You treasure that child. You wouldn't sell that child for billions of dollars. You cannot imagine a day when you would ever quit loving that child. Jesus says that amount of treasuring, treasure me like that, even beyond that. He is saying, I am worthy of being treasured even more than a mother treasures her child. Can I point out no religious leader has ever talked like that. Have you, has it ever occurred to you how self-referential Jesus is? That is either the most egotistical comment. Isn't it? Who says stuff like that? Isn't that egotistical? I mean, it literally, egotistical, self-centered. Is that not self If I said it, that'd be pretty arrogant, wouldn't it? Can you imagine if you got in an Uber and your Uber driver said, oh, by the way, you're not worthy of me unless you love me more than your own parents. What would you say? I'm getting out now. Thank you. I'm, getting, I'm going to try lift because uh, this is uh, horrifying, right? What if your kid plays basketball and the coach says, you're going to love me as your t-ball coach, which a minute ago is basketball. It's crazy. He's a multi-sport athlete. <laughs> you're going to love me more than your own mother and father. You would be like, um, so like sports are important, um, but that may cross a line. Like, no, I'm not going to love you, coach, more than I love my father and mother, dad. This is, you know, like, um, I, I mean, in that case, it would work out fine. You'd say, okay, but at least there's a relationship. At least you could kind of see why somebody would say that, unlike the Uber driver. Let's crank it up a notch. Let's say this fall, those of you who have graduating seniors, that's next Sunday, by the way, we'll, we'll uh, talk about that. Um, uh, you send your kid off to college and he comes back uh, at Christmas break. Uh, he or she comes back, Mom, Dad, this has been awesome at college. I met this spiritual guru who led me on a path of enlightenment and he told me I'm to follow and love him more than my own parents. What would you do then? You'd go get Liam Neeson and together... This is a cult, obviously, right? And you would rescue that child from a cult. That's creepy and weird. So you tell me, I just described somebody saying something and everybody in here goes, that's a cult. Either Jesus is a megalomaniac monster or he's a liar or he's a lunatic or he's the Lord. There's no other option. Who has a right to say that? Who has a right? In the verses just before that, he's like, hey, listen, if you're not ashamed of me, I'll get you into heaven. I'll, I'll, I'll say I'm not ashamed before my father. Who has a right to say your eternal destiny? It's based on what I think of you. The divinity claims of Jesus are being poured out all over Matthew 10 when you look at this. He's saying, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. You need to fear the one who, after killing the body, has the determination of the whole heaven-hell thing. That's who you need to fear. All over here. Well, it's, it's, he's the Lord. So you, but you see, I just want you to see why it's so divisive. Okay. That's my final point, and I, I won't belabor it. We, we spent enough time. I, I think you got it. The, the, Jesus is, all I wanted is Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. He sends us out. We can expect opposition. Jesus is worth it. 
Some people would say, well, my family is not my main struggle. Uh, uh, my main loyalty is not to my family. It's to something else. Maybe my own honor or my own health or my own life. Jesus says, whatever it is, choose me. So he kind of sums all that up in verse 38. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In other words, he's saying, so, so maybe it's not your family. Maybe it's dignity. Maybe it's something else. Let me put it to you like this. They haven't taught much about the cross in Matthew. And so you imagine his disciples, they, they've seen a crucifixion. First they go through a trial. Then this person is tortured. And then the moment comes when they have to take up their cross. In other words, they would take the cross. And the way they did it in Rome, the accused had to carry their own cross to the place of execution. Walk outside the city. If it was in Jerusalem, they'd walk outside the city. And the accused had to carry his own cross. And so when Jesus said, carry your own cross, here's one thing it meant at that point. May not, they may not have pieced all the stuff together, but here's one thing. Every time they saw somebody take that cross, that poor accused criminal had to go out and take their cross, here's one thing they knew. That was a one-way trip. They ain't coming back. One way. And what he's saying is, this kind of commitment to me, it's, it's a one-way trip. But you'll, here's what's interesting. You'll follow me. And I don't know if that's a little foreshadowing that uh, you won't be the only one to walk this dark path. Well, if he ended right there, it'd be awfully harsh. And I think, he'd be, I think people would be left with questions. And the questions they would be left with are, but wait a minute, if I love Jesus more than my family, if I love Jesus more than mama, if I love Jesus more than my own life, won't that make me a bad husband? Won't that make me a bad kid? If I, if I prioritize Jesus over my family, won't that make me a bad kid? Jesus says, actually, actually, it's the craziest thing. It'll actually make you a better kid. It'll actually give you life. Now, now, now stay with me, stay with me. You're telling me if I love Jesus more than I love my wife, if I love Jesus more than I love my church, if I love Jesus more than I love my mama and daddy, if I love Jesus more than I love my kids, if I love Jesus more than I love my own life, won't that make me bad at all these things and love these other things less? He's saying, no, when you love Jesus supremely, it opens up your heart. It opens up your life, and you find levels of love that you've never known before. I can't explain it, but when you go after and try to, try to selfishly hold on to the things of this life, when you pursue all these pleasures, you end up losing everything that's of importance and real value. But if you'll give your life for me, if you will give your life in service to King Jesus, you end up finding purpose. People who are happy are not those that are hunting pleasure. It's people who are hunting purpose. Seek and you shall find. You give everything over to me and you'll find life. How could he possibly explain this? It'd be cryptic, but it's almost like, it's almost like this. It's almost like whoever, whoever seeks to like, like seek his life will end up losing it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Does that make sense? If I love my kids more than Jesus, I end up losing both Jesus and the kid. Because I've basically told Jesus, you're not my highest treasure. And he just said, anyone who doesn't love me more is not worthy of me. So I've just told Jesus, you're not my highest treasure. And here's the other thing. I've made my kid my highest treasure. And let me tell you one thing about kids. They cannot bear the weight of being God. They're just a kid. You can love them as a kid. Well, how do I do that? How do I not, how do I not make my kid an idol? I love Jesus more. That's it. It's interesting, isn't it? Whoever loves his own life ends up losing it. But lose yourself in Jesus as your priority, and you end up finding everything you wanted. Incredible. 
both this life and the life to come. Brandon's going to come and lead us in a time of response. I just wanted to get across. Jesus sends us out. We are to expect opposition. And Jesus is worth it. He came not to bring peace, but a sword. I, uh, I wonder. That, that, that is such a startling line. Do not think that I've come to bring peace. I tell you, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. I, yeah, I, I, just, I just wonder um, how that might have landed on uh, Jesus' mama. Anybody know where I'm going with this? There's no reason not to think that Jesus' own mother wouldn't have heard that line in Matthew 10. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. It would divide. It would cut. I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm the Messiah you guys think that I am, where I'm just going to swoop in here and everything's going to be all roses and sunshine and I'm going to inaugurate a kingdom of peace. The fact of the matter is there's going to be a lot of division. And because of my preaching and teaching, I'm going to basically hand my enemies a sword. How do you think that landed on Mary? In, uh, in Luke's gospel, after the stuff about the shepherds and the angels and all that, they go to present baby Jesus at the temple. Or Joseph and Mary are there and uh, Jesus. And this prophet, Simeon, sees him. Do you remember this story? Old Simeon had been waiting for the Messiah, waiting. And I don't know how he knew, but he walks up. Can you imagine <laughs> going to Walmart and some crazy old prophet? Can I hold your baby? <laughs> Simeon sees him in the temple, says, this is it. And what does he say? Now I can die in peace. Mary knew this kid was special. But to see an ancient prophet say, now I can die in peace. My eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. So he gives this incredible prophecy. His mother and father marveled. But this is the verse that gets me. And Simeon blessed them. And then he said to Mary, his mother, called Mary aside, had one last word for mama. I don't know if he said it tenderly. I'm sure he did. I don't know that he wanted to say it, but he's a prophet. He's got to speak God's word. This is what he said. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. See what he's saying? As long as Jesus does the peace stuff. As long as he does the healing and the teaching. He's going to live to a ripe old age. And everybody's going to love him. And there's going to be Mary just watching that son grow up. Loved by everybody. But if he came to do what God sent him to do. If he came to die on the cross. If he came to talk about sin. If he came to talk about how he was the solution for sin. If he came to talk about how he was the suffering lamb of God. That would just give a sword to his enemies. And he would be pierced for our transgressions. But you know when Mary looked up in agony from that cross. And saw that baby boy on that cross. Don't you know a sword pierced through her heart too. And you know what she would say about motherhood, about her Lord, about everything? She would say, Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. Oh, God, grant that we would treasure you. You have sent us out. You've called us with a holy calling. You have told us to expect opposition. Oh, but God, you are worth it grant that we wouldn't be satisfied with lesser loves, that we wouldn't be satisfied with lesser things. Jesus, you're worth it. 
God grant us clarity around a uh, potentially easy to misunderstand and difficult uh, text. Grant us, oh God, that you'd speak to us at a heart level about treasuring you. If there's anybody here who doesn't treasure you, they don't know you, oh, today would be the day that they would repent from sin and turn and place their life in your hands. They would trust you unto salvation. And if there's anybody here who needs to be brought back closer to you, today would be the day you'd let them know how much you love them. Forgiveness, full and free, ready for them. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?